1: This to me is like, like, like the really fascinating material. We don't know
2: what
1: the answer is, but we're looking for patterns.
2: I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The
0: story slowly moves Still,
1: a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-blowing. We can't. We are already recording, and we're here on Normal, and uh, we have a guest that I'm very excited about on the line, and that is Diana walsh pasuka She is the author of a book called American Cosmic. Some of you guys may have heard about it, and uh, Sarah Fiel is here. Yes. And back from a uh, two-week hiatus. Welcome back, sir.
2: Yes, I've returned.
1: So... Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so I kind of want to get into this. Diana, welcome to Conspiranormal.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here.
1: Yeah, um, it's been a while coming. I've uh, I've heard you on Radio Misterioso and uh, heard your name in a lot of different circles. So I'm uh, really happy to speak to you. I mean, this was an interesting and fascinating book. Um,
3: thank you. Thank you.
1: I also read your article that you did in... UFOs are reframing the debate with Robbie Graham
3: that's right yeah I I was was actually supposed yeah I was supposed to actually write a article for that but um at the same time I was writing this book and then my editor said it was a conflict of interest so she said you can't write that article so Robbie's a friend of mine and so I said Robbie Robbie I can't write the article and he said well can you do the intro and so I did the intro
1: that's right. You did the introduction. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful book.
1: It is. It is. We did actually, like, two different shows with uh, quite a few of the people. I had Robbie on. I had Greg Bishop on, Joshua Cutchin, uh Susan Demeter, St. Clair, a couple other people, that Red Pill Excellent. Junkie.
3: Excellent. So, Excellent.
1: And uh, Red Pill's actually going to be our guest next time. But... I- I want to get into this because, I mean, this is, like I said, a fascinating book, but I kind of want to go through you, like, like your background sure. as a religious studies professor and what that means. And also kind of this, uh, something that I'm also just really fascinated with and, with, and I'm going to have to get you on, I think, to do another interview just solely about this, but kind of like this idea about your study into like saints and miracles and all this.
3: Sure, yes, yes. That's the reason why I'm here. <laughs> basically. That's why I'm doing this study right now. Yeah. Um, okay, so um okay, so I'm a professor of religion and I grew up in California, and I have um, as a kid, i'm I'm not a typical kind of person. At eleven, I decided I want to learn about religion. And I decided to go to um, school from a young age. It's almost as if I chose, or it chose me, my, my field chose me. And I started by going to Catholic schools as a kid. My mother's Jewish and my father is Catholic from Ireland. And what happened was that I went to a Catholic school with sisters back in the day, that time period, um, there were sisters who ran these schools and these were people who were in California. So they were people who walked the walk, you know, walked the, they, what's the cliche? They walked the talk. Walked the talk. Yeah. 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 And um, they actually went to Central America and helped people fed people who were being disappeared and all that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot of politics and religion at the same time. And the Catholic church is a church that is kind of like the United States. It's not, united (laughs) we call ourselves the united states but we're really not united and the catholic church is not united either um so they were the kind of cutting edge of the church in that they were and in my opinion doing the work of the of what jesus wanted them to do which was you know feed the hungry and help the poor and a lot of them died for it and so that made a huge impression on me And so I I decided I wanted to learn about this type of thing. And and what I did was I went to school uh, at UC Davis, and then I went through the uh, Berkeley's graduate program in religious studies, and then ended up at Syracuse in New York. And I studied religion, and I'd basically been trained as a graduate student, but also remember that I grew up in the – you know, I was around in the 1990s when the dot-com boom was happening in – Bay Area where I was at. So I was very fascinated with the change around me in the infrastructure of digital technology. And so all of this impacted what would then, what I feel was a very fortuitous meeting with Jacques Vallée, who again, a completely Catholic, I mean, he's not a practicing Catholic, but he grew up Catholic in France, Um, went through, became one of the earliest um, computer scientists at Northwestern, got a Ph.D. in computer science in the 1960s, I think, and then became a computer scientist in Silicon Valley in the 1970s. And so um, I didn't meet him until the 2000s, but I felt like we had kind of a similar background in the sense that, well— I can't, I mean, he's amazing. He's an amazing, um, scientist who knew things that were going to happen in the future that did happen. And so I kind of, um, learned about Catholic culture, the Western tradition and, and came across a lot of, um, what you call aerial, aerial phenomena and, and stuff like that. And I didn't, quite understand those because I wasn't a person who was interested in UFOs. Um, but then I had read his Passport to Magonia and then understood that what I had been studying for most of my life was pretty much what he had been studying, but we were coming at it from two directly different you know, um, places. He was computer science and I was religious studies, but it was the same phenomena we were studying and so I had and I was already studying about technology so it it just kind of fit so I met him and we started to work together and um, that's kind of how my my story started my I mean in my in my field you can't really study this stuff without being ostracized so I began the study when I was a full professor And that was in 2012. So you become an assistant. It's kind of like being a lawyer. You know, you're like a junior partner, then you're a partner, then you're a full partner. So in academia, you're an assistant professor until you publish enough to get tenure. Then you're a tenure professor until you become published enough to be a full professor. And and I was a full professor by 2012. And I said, I'm going to study this now. So that's what happened.
1: And I was understand also that you were uh, a consultant on the Conjuring film.
3: Yeah, and that was a weird coincidence. So um, coincidences and synchronicities uh, are within, you know, I mean, it seems to be the case that within religion and within ufology, synchronicities are something that reoccur. So I pay attention to them. So, in 2012, when I began to study UFOs, I mean, for want of a better word, I call them UFOs, um, the phenomena, whatever you want to call it. So, what happened in 2012 was I got a phone call. I'm at a university on the ocean um, in the south where it's called Hollywood East, and we have a film industry here. It's a fairly robust film industry. Uh, Lots of films were produced here and TV series one Tree Hill, Dawson's Creek, back in the day, that kind of thing. And so I was called, and, and they they were very secretive about it. And they said, we need someone to, you know, decipher the Latin for the right of exorcism. And I was thinking, hmm. oh, this has got to be a film about, you know, an exorcism. So I said, yes, I'd go. And so I went on set, and it turned out to be the director was, the, yeah, the director was James Wan. And so... Um, I was uh, hired to help them. I I saw that they needed a lot of help, actually. They were writing about Catholic culture, but none of them were Catholic. So I was able to write for them like a little pressy, you know, this is summary about Catholic culture. Ed and Lorraine Warren were traditional Catholics. As I specialize in that. So it was kind of a weird coincidence. Now, the weirdest coincidence was this, was that Chad and Carrie Hayes, who are the screenwriters for The Conjuring, had actually um, had finished a film starring Hilary Swank. And, and her character was a professor of religion. And then I had just written, a, a, one of my first articles published was an article about people like Chad and Carrie Hayes who based their stories on quote-unquote true events. And so I was. I had written about them, and they had written about me, but w- then we met, and they were like, you exist? And I said, oh, this is like a laboratory for my study. So it, we instantly hit it off.
1: So right away, there's some interesting synchronicities. So Yes, yes. How do you get into this world that deals with Silicon Valley and... UFOs and weird stuff in the desert. How does this happen to you?
3: Okay. Yeah, this is a very good question. So, I'm from the Bay Area. I'm from, you know, I grew up there and went to school there. So, I'm familiar with that area. So, what happens, but I'm here in the South. This is where I live right now. And what happened was that several people from Silicon Valley and uh, people who are interested in the phenomena and technology uh, get in touch with me and um, they want to know about, in fact, some of uh, the, some of the people who work for Bob Bigelow get in touch with me and they want to know, some of the things I've written about, say angels and things like that, in the past, and I'm thinking to myself, "This is just really weird." Because remember, I don't, I've not thought of UFOs in my life. I have never seen close encounter, and I've never seen it. Still, close encounters of the third kind. So this is You've not. i have never seen close encounters
1: of the third no, kind. I
3: know it's really it's a blast. Oh man. Me, right? <laughs> I know I'm bad. <laughs> So you have to understand that this is just completely outside of my realm. And so these folks are getting in, in contact with me and here I am like studying people like Chris Bledsoe, not studying him, I mean, he's a friend of mine. So we're hanging out, right? And I'm interested in this experience or experience of like, you know, aerial phenomena in the sky. And I'm not necessarily thinking that has anything to do with technology at all. But then what I start to realize is that there are these other, there's another group other than the experiencers. And, you know, the ones that like Chris Bledsoe is an experiencer and he's in North Carolina. He lives very close to me. That's why we're able to, that's why he and I are able to communicate so much. So I learned a lot about his case because we live about an hour and a half. uh, way, one of his children went to my university, and I know them very well. It's a great family, wonderful people, and so I start to see what's going on in his life, and I see that there are these physicists and scientists who kind of circulate around him, and I'm thinking, what what is going on? Like, why are they doing this? Like, this never happened to me when I studied Catholic culture, like you know <laughs> when I went, you know, seriously. So no. I'm thinking. This is very strange. So I, you know, I'm an academic and I take notes, right? So I'm taking notes, and I'm, I'm thinking, who are these people? And then I'm getting these emails from scientists who are asking me about my research into angels that appear, and so so it's beginning to be a weird scenario for me. And then finally. And by the way, I had already done this book about the Catholic culture of purgatory, and I had found a lot of aerial phenomena kinds of reports, and I'd kept a log about that. And so I was beginning to make the connections that these were still happening and that people were interpreting them differently. But it wasn't just the interpretation that was different. It was the actual operational capacities that were fascinating to me in this very specific way that scientists were actually gaining information from the experiencers and operationalizing this information into actual technologies that then became um, part of our bodies, basically kind of like biotechnologies. Wow. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit as
2: far as the, (laughs) the biotech?
3: Yeah, so um, this is what made me, um, okay, so a few times in my research, I had the occasion to think, I think I might be a little freaked out by this, you know, this is just a little too weird for me, and this was one of them, was to recognize that biotechnologists were taking information that they were gathering from you know whether or not it was inspired whether or not it was actual I don't know I don't have the capacity to tell you that all I know was that these people were actually creating patents that were then being translated into biotechnologies that were then being um used by doctors who had no clue, by the way, that where this stuff was coming from, and then integrating that into the into human bodies for benefit, and this was incredibly interesting to me. So this is what I wrote my book about, basically. This was the Silicon Valley connection. So then I realized that the people that I was going to be writing about were not the experiencers themselves, but were the scientists who were actually using the information, not just from the experiencers, but a lot of the scientists were experiencers themselves. And so I then focused on them. And I thought, wow, this is a more weird story than John Mack's story, and I'm going to focus on this. And, that, and you know, I, I then told my editor at Oxford, I said, listen, this is really not something that I think Oxford would be interested in, but I promise you... I have, you know, this data is all correct. I have corroborating evidence from other academics that these people are really doing what they're doing. I have the patents and I showed everything to them and they thought it too. They were like, wow, yeah, you're right. Let's do it. So that's how the book started.
2: So does it seem like, um, it probably seems like particular fields, uh, are people who specialize in particular fields are being more uh, influenced. I guess you could see some kind of purpose in that um, that if there is some kind of interface with something else that's perhaps helping to guide our evolution or something like that like biotechnologists would be at the forefront of that whole kind of process So that's really really interesting
3: Yeah, I mean I have talked about this um, on various levels and I, I agree. I think it's you know, if it were the case that I've been invited to various, you know, conferences that speak of evolution, and some of the scientists I know have two. And in terms of evolution, it's hard to say, you know, but it appears that if if your thesis is correct here, that that would be absolutely the case that you know here we have the CRISPR technology you know where we can actually go in and change how we are as humans and you know um, so uh, I agree I agree with you I have to be really careful though because I am not first I'm not a scientist second I'm agnostic with respect to the scientists I study in my book Um, um, but I have my own opinions as well, and they change a lot based on what, what I've been told and what I know. And, um, you know, a lot of information has been coming out recently, uh, to the public, as you know, and I think that the public is, you know, we've been raised on Star Wars and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that the public is, um, Knows that something strange is going on, right? I mean, it's, yeah.
1: Well, especially after the New York Times revelation. I mean, yeah. There's been a lot a- of debate about all that, but <laughs> uh, whether that's uh, important or not. But I think it's still pretty important. I think it's still got people talking about it. And you mentioned that at the towards the end of the book, because I guess that was kind of towards the end of you writing the book when that came out.
3: I can tell you this: that I am in touch with the authors of that piece and we've been in touch a lot i've talked to them many times and we've talked about my book we've talked about their piece and stuff like that and for them to be able to get that piece into the new york times was an incredible achievement it was it was not easy let's put it that way those those two blumenthal and keen our heroes for getting that in there. I mean, as much as they've been criticized for it and this and that, I mean to even get that in there, and it's true. These programs exist. Um, if you go to, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a researcher. I've been re- a researcher for years and years and years. So I, in the beginning of my study, I went to the sources, and one of the sources I went to was an um, Air Force archive. And the Air Force Archive was at first very keen to have me there, you know, being a Ph.D., university professor, you know, this kind of thing, being pretty uh, on the up and up, right? I've never really written anything weird um, until recently. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a full professor, right? So I get there. You mean like bilocation
1: and levitation isn't weird enough?
3: <laughs> well, as long as it's in the past. Oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's in the past. As long as it's historical and you're writing about it as kind of a social construct, it's okay. So um, so I get there, and they've already studied who I am, and they found an article on that you know I'd written about UFOs. Like I had written a an article where I do an analysis of Teresa of Avila, who's a saint in the Catholic Church and a doctor of the Catholic Church, with um, this man named Edward Carlos, who John Mack has also featured in his book, and I kind of compare their experiences. And, I, you know, it was a completely academic article. But because of that article, I was not let in to the archive. And then I researched and I realized that, you know, the historians of that archive, and we're talking about the Air Force archive there, um, basically are very honest. Thank goodness, you know, historians go through the same academic training that I go through. And they basically said... Yeah, we're going to share with you what you what we can share with you, but a lot of what we have is classified, and is classified for good reason, and we can't share it with you. <laughs> so there you have it. They're not lying. You know, they, they do have classified information about space programs that they will not tell you about. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you end up being blindfolded and taken to the desert. How did this come about?
3: Yeah. Okay, so um, I what's really funny is I just read a review today about the book, and the first paragraph kind of talks about that scene. It says, "You know, we just hope that she's not murdered," which I think is really funny. <laughs> um, but there needs to be yeah, some somebody context. else
1: finished the book.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there needs to be some context here. So I had been um, corresponding with uh, this person. I had met the person who took me to the desert. And I'd been corresponding with him for like a year and a half. So it's not like out of the blue, this person says, I'm going to take you to the desert and blindfold you and we will see a crash site, you know, and this kind of thing. No, 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 that's not what's going on. So what has happened is that one of the people who has been affiliated with the experiencers happens to be a very, very established person in the space industry. And you could, you know, I checked him out. He's totally legit. And had, and we had been, now, that doesn't mean I'm not suspicious of this person. So I am suspicious. So I have a friend of mine, Jeff Kripal, who's an academic at Rice University. And he and I go to meet him. And he turns out to be this incredibly charming, normal person. And so um, we talked to him. He's a scientist and he then says to me my mentor in the space program tells me that the next the next the next step up about learning about the phenomena will not be material science but it will be what you know about mystical and consciousness and that kind of thing and so i was like again suspicious and said okay and he said so i have a place in new mexico it's not roswell but it's a crash site that happened in the 1940s. And this one of like eight, I believe. And he said, I'd like to take you there so you can see the physical evidence of what you've been studying your whole life. And of course I was like very intrigued, but said no, because you know, it's out of my comfort zone. So I said, I will go, but if you allow me to take another person. And he said, out of the question, no. Um, I have to get special permission. You have to be blindfolded so you don't know where it is. And I said, well, for sure, no, you know, and then um, (laughs) don't blame (laughs) me. Yeah. And then um, I had met an academic. I call him James. And he's on fire. To you know, this is one of the best academics, biotechnologists in the world. And I have the highest respect for this person. He's the hardest working person I know and um incredibly devoted to his job like he lives his job and he's fascinated with this topic he's also an experiencer so i asked him if he would go with me and he said i'll i'll go with you like tomorrow i'll go with you like in an hour if you told me to and so i said okay so i i explained to the person who was going to take us his name is tyler and now this this tyler has been has worked on almost every space shuttle Program. Okay. So he's an engineer with the space program. And so Tyler says no. And so we say, okay, but I knew he was going to say yes, because I just felt it. I just knew it. And eventually he did. He said, yes, you know, James can come. So James and I go out there and we wear the blindfolds and we go out to the desert and we have metal detectors that are special metal detectors. And of course I'm going out there as a professor of religion so I'm not exactly on board with belief. I'm not saying that there are, you know, this was the place of an alien crash site. What I'm saying is that these two incredible scientists believe this. And I want to know why they believe this. So we go out there and strangely enough we're out there it's a beautiful place by the way it's beautiful but it's also eerie. And we have to wear special clothes, you know, have to wear high boots because they're rattlesnakes. And we're gonna get sunburns, so we have to wear hats. And I mean, we just look really ridiculous. So we're out there <laughs> and we, you know, we're in 45 minutes with our blindfolds in this car ride out there. And so we get out there, we take off our blindfolds and we look around and I keep looking over at this one kind of Mesa area. And Tyler says to me, do you recognize that area? And I'm thinking, oh, I do, but I don't know what it is. So I tell him, well, you know, I don't recognize I've not been out here before. And he said, well, that was that was on one of the episodes of X-Files because they had, they probably had an insider on their production team. And then I recognized it and I thought, wow. This is really weird, now that now this story gets weird for me. I mean, of course, it's weird enough. But it just really got weird for me because of the media influence here. Because regardless of whether or not something landed there and crashed, in the minds and imaginations of Americans and people all over the world who have been, you know, who were weaned on the X-Files like me, you know, this is real. And so, you know, and that's kind of what my research is about, is about how media makes things real for us. Yeah,
1: I loved that. I loved that chapter, by the way. I mean, that was some, I think I need to go back and reread that because that was just some really, some really heady stuff about how media basically creates a new mythology, essentially. It
3: really does. Yeah. Yeah. And especially media today. Um, and do reread it. Yeah.
2: Blurring yes. of lines like in that Baudrillardian kind of sense.
3: Exactly, yeah, you guys are totally... See, a lot of people focus on the first chapter, the first two chapters and the in the last chapter, but they don't get that inside book, t- part of the book where I basically say, you know, if there's an alien invasion, this is it. You know, it's like the media that's invading the ways in which we believe and think and practice and, and everything like that. Like, this is it right here.
2: Well, you said at, at that... Uh, uh at that moment when you're out in the desert with two, you know, true believers, pretty much, you felt like you were at ground zero for the uh, building of a a mythology for a new religion.
3: Yes. Yes.
2: And that's where, you know, all your, your studies into religious culture and the, they really, you know, I guess made you realize this and you tie in the media's role in that also. But uh, I mean, that's really interesting as far as, you know, something we've talked about, too, as far as, uh, you know, this being kind of a part of the it's been interacting with the larger New Age stuff for, you know, over 100 years also. But the, the belief in extraterrestrials is kind of a religion, pretty much.
3: And it's also a new form of religion. So that's that's what I'm pra- that's okay. basically what I'm trying to say here is that we have had, you know, think about it. Um, I, I mean, this requires your audience and us to understand religion, not tribally, like not something that we we're brought up with. This, uh, this makes us understand religion as something that we are, um, we interact with within our environment. So environments create um, our practices and our beliefs, and so we have a new environment, and it's a digital digital environment. And so our religion is going to reflect that digital environment. And so think about animism, right? Animism reflects the belief, you know, animism is this idea that, you know, the spirits of, tree. there are spirits of places and trees and things like that, right? So that's a very um, type, that's a specific type of environmental religion. Think of the book religion. What are the book religions? Well, you have Islam, you have Christianity of Judaism, and all of these religions by the way came about through circumstances that were environmental because judaism was not a book religion until its temple was destroyed right so this temple gets destroyed and then all of a sudden it becomes a book religion and so what i'm saying now is that our environment is creating a new form of religion and this is its new form is the UFO type of religion because you don't just have, you know, you have your experiencers here and there who are important like Travis Walton and stuff like that. But for the most part, you have contactees everywhere in the world that are now being associated through groups, through Twitter groups, you know, through media technology and they don't, and they all experience, their contact on their own, you know, CE five groups, you know, things like that. So there it's, it's very, it follows along the same lines as the environment in which we live. So this is a new type. I'm not saying there's a new religion. I'm saying there's a new type of religion.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of media theory in there. Even like some of the, uh, uh, McClone stuff, the medium is a message. This is the, you know, the medium of this digital technology is just like, you know, the Gutenberg press was such a big part of, western christianity uh what we know of it now this is kind of a new a new medium uh for this religion to spread in these new ways
3: that's exactly it yes thanks Uh, for understanding
2: that yeah it's a a great (laughs) synthesis you really you really uh just kind of summarized a lot of what i think would would kind of be difficult for a lot of people to start trying to get a hold
1: of but you did a great summary of it right there
3: thank you thank you
1: well one thing that i want to ask you about uh, is there any thing that has to deal with um, something that's that's kind of a big thing right now, which is like transhumanism? Is there a connection to this and to this new form of religion? Are the two Absolutely. are they mutually yeah. exclusive, or is there no, a no, connection?
3: No, no, there's a complete connection because what we have here is we have biotechnology, right? We have biotechnologists who are integrating what they believe to be ET, I mean, I'm now talking from their perspective, ET downloads into the human body. And so what we have is we have a cyborg type human evolving from this. Um, I have my students and kids, they ask me all the time, is there gonna be a new species of human? You know, and I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um, these are these
1: a, are the college kids that are asking this question.
3: Yes. And, you know, and what's interesting is that there's a sci fi writer named Ted Chang. I don't know if you've read his actually one of his um, short stories was the basis for the movie called Arrival, which, uh-huh. by the way, I think is a really good movie yeah, about excellent film. Yeah. And so um, he wrote about 20, maybe even 25 years ago, he wrote a very short story about how humans shift species and they do it through these scientists who start to i don't want to like ruin the story or anything but how they start to um hack into themselves the biotechnology i think i
2: have that book isn't there like uh it's kind of like a cyberpunk book and isn't there like subcultures based around uh people hacking their bodies like maybe might have one group who likes scales you know scales is a new cool fashion and uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty wild. Do, kind of Hunger
1: Games esque, you know, in a way. Yeah, Blade yeah. Runner yeah. too. Yeah,
3: yeah. So yeah, I do think so. I mean, um, what's really interesting is I have a friend named David Halperin who is also a he's a ufologist, but he's not necessarily a believer. Like say Jacques Vallée is a believer. They know each other very well, by the way, and um, they were both grad students in the 1960s. And um, David Halperin is a a professor of Judaism and ancient Hebrew and he's a specialist in Ezekiel's wheel okay mm-hmm. so he knows this stuff better than anybody that I've met and so we've had uh so, I mean he and I are friends we've talked a lot about this and when t- and we don't have we have fairly divergent views about it but you know academics get along even if they don't agree so um he said Diana, he said, I think this is ultimately the UFO phenomenon is about death. And I said, David, Hmm. I said, it is about death. It's about death of the human as we know it, the human species as we know it.
2: Oh, wow. Well, then, I mean, what it makes me think about is what the utility of this new religion would be and whether the transhumanist future... That seems to be um, inevitable. Is um, it requires this new religion because it's going to be bumping up against traditional religion, and I think they're going to be encountering a lot of problems with traditional religion while people are trying to live hundreds of years, extend their life, and merge with machines. I, I can see all that. You know, you have the whole idea of the Ardelect War. I forgot who the who came up with that, but uh,
1: does that DeGarris? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: So is is transhumanism and this new religion is this is this required for this world pretty much?
3: Well, okay, so this requires an understanding of what religion is, which you know okay. so religion has about thirty different definitions. That's the first thing I have to tell my students when they come into a basic studies religion class is that what is religion anyway? You know, we we say, oh, we know this thing called love, we know this thing called truth. But when you start to get down into, you know, in philosophy and religion, we we actually have to define these ideas. So religion has so many different definitions. But religion is basically about organizing reality through a framework and an understanding. So if our new religion is about... Um, understanding us, understanding humans within a cosmic culture, then I think that, you know, if we're going to get to Mars or we're going to, you know, we're going to be off planet, then we need to understand ourselves as things that can actually be off planet. And right now, NASA is trying to figure out how to get through the radiation belt. And they're not doing a very good job of it. So, okay, so, you know, our human bodies as they are, are not able to do that. So what they're trying to do is they're, they're doing everything they can to try to figure out how does the human body, you know, how can we put something on the human body, like almost like a um, medieval, um, you know how in the medieval times they wo- the knights wore those suits and stuff? Right. They're trying to figure out how do we, you know, equip astronauts with these suits that can get them through, that can actually get them to Mars. Well, I don't think we're going to be able to do that with the kinds of bodies that we have now. So, um So this new idea, this new quote-unquote religion of what I'm talking about is not necessarily the kinds of religions that we see with the book religions. They're a type of belief system that will allow us to think of ourselves as extraplanetary beings of sorts, basically.
2: I'm sure you're familiar with the SRI study, the Changing Images of Man
3: Yes, absolutely. SRI. I talk a lot about that in a lot of stuff that was edited out of my book.
2: Okay. Well, it <laughs> really, I mean, that's kind of exactly the same things you're talking about it. They were, yeah. they were thinking because of the cold war, very apocalyptically and that we're going to destroy ourselves if we don't find a new image of mankind. But, uh, this is a you're talking about like a new technological image that will allow space travel in these technologies. And absolutely fascinating.
3: What's really interesting, too, if you want to get back to the kind of saint, the, you know, kind of the reason why I was um, pinged by these scientists in the first place was because I was talking about people in the past who had done astral travel to what they would consider to be planets or even our own planet in different places. Like in my book, I talk about Sister Mar- Maria of Agrada from Spain, who believed that she traveled to New Mexico and, um, you know, talked to the indigenous population there. And she described in detail what she saw and these kinds of things. So she's not the only one. There were many, many, many who did this. And so I, I've written about a couple of them. And so people then were interested in that because SRI remote viewers had also said similar themes. And so I think that they, you know, I think that the people who, are, were part of the S R I, especially in the 70s and 80s. You know, they were unc- They didn't know that there was a history. You know, this is the history of religion, that or the Western culture or even the Asian culture, right? So they didn't know that there was a whole history of people who believed that they or traveled to these different kinds of places, and if people could actually do that, how how could they do that, and why, and what under what conditions could they do that? And so I think that um, that's an aspect and, and believe me, I don't know, <laughs> but that's an aspect of the book that I think that um, I went into a bit, and again, you know, a lot of it that was edited out too.
2: And what what Jacques Vallee talks about also is that the all the founding of what we know as the internet, all the ARPANET stuff, was going on simultaneously at SRI at the same time.
3: It ag- exactly was, and in fact, um, strangely enough, at some point. In my research, I had been talking to various people like Edgar Mitchell, the the astronaut, uh, several people anonymously in the space program, and Jacques, and people affiliated with Jacques. Um, And then I recognized at one point that, and strangely it came up, I had no idea, but a lot of these people were part of the SRI. And I was like, what? You know, like all of these people who I... who i knew independently of one another were all sri people now that's a very strange coincidence
1: indeed it is um back to maria of agrita if i'm saying that correctly um can you go over that story i mean because that's a pretty amazing story
3: it is amazing so um so okay so I am – I'm doing this book on the UFO culture and, you know, the people who I've met who are scientists and experiencers and are at the forefront of studying the phenomena. And they're not known, by the way. These people are not – you know, you like we, we name off all the people we know who study the phenomena. These are not them. <laughs> okay? So that's the one thing I These want. These are people. the people
1: that are in the shadows that are – Yeah.
3: Right. They are. They're like the fight club, you know, Private it's like, people. You yeah. yeah, you don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. And so, um,
1: by the way, I was wondering why you used the pseudonym Tyler. Could that be a reference to fight club as well?
3: It's a total reference to fight club, Tyler That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, this guy is like kind of unbelievable. I got some hate mail about him by the way, which I thought was funny because they were like, Oh, get off your horse. People like this don't exist. And I'm like, um, Actually, this guy exists, (laughs) and I have independent corroboration. I mean, Oxford University Press would not let me write about a guy who does not exist. Let's put it that way. I would lose my job if I wrote about stuff that didn't exist. So I'm not putting myself out there. And if you look at my history, you would see that I've been honest in everything I've written. I've not ever written about stuff that didn't exist. I have my sources out there. But just for
1: the record, you're doing this to using the pseudonym because that's their wishes
3: i'm using yes i'm using the pseudonym to protect them because they have uh sensitive positions right and plus you know john mack when he wrote about you know look what happened to john mack in the 1980s um he was uh he was put under the scrutiny of harvard his own university and he was a pulitzer prize winning research professor. So, you know, I, I have not won the Pulitzer prize, you know, I'm like, I'm not as prestigious as him. So I could very, you know, I don't believe my university would do that. My university is awesome. They, they're totally, they back me, you know? So anyway, but, um, so Maria of Agreda, you asked about her. Okay. So this yes, is a story. Yes. Yeah, this is a story. So I'm, I've written this book. I've, I stopped, at this chapter with Ray Hernandez. And the reason I stop with him, he's a very fascinating guy, is because he and his wife, his wife is Catholic and he's, at, he's atheist. And they have this experience together um, that surrounds their dog who's dying. And there's a miraculous healing of their dog by this plasma thing. And then they see craft and stuff like that. And they both see them. But they both interpret them differently. And that's part of what my book is about, is about how we interpret these things differently. So his wife interprets them as angels from the Catholic tradition, and Ray interprets them as UFOs. Okay. So then... You see
1: that a lot in these cases. People interpret them through the frame of their belief system.
3: Exactly. And, And so that's what I thought I was ending with, right? So in the meantime... I'm scheduled to go to the Vatican to do an analysis of two, um, one a saint and one not a saint. One is a Maria of Agreda, and the other is uh, Joseph of Cupertino, who is a saint. And they're in the Catholic tradition, and they both are Contemporaneous with each other. One's from Italy, one's from Spain, and they both do astral travel and levitation and this kind of thing. And so I'm asked by a billionaire, and it's not Bigelow. Some people are like, is it Bigelow? And it's like, no. Um, but I'm asked by this billionaire to go to the archive because I have credentials to get into the archive, but not a lot of people can get into the archive. So I go there to look at their manuscripts, and the question that the billionaire has is, why is Joseph a saint, but Maria is not a saint? I mean, they do the same things. And so I said, sure, I'll go look for you. Um, So this is after the book is done. I turn the book in, and I go to the Vatican, and I start looking through these manuscripts. And, oh, by the way, I take Tyler with me. Tyler is the guy who takes me to New Mexico, And so Tyler, being someone who knows about aeronautics, I figured would know about the aeronautics of levitation. I thought if anybody could help me, he could. So I convinced the billionaire that this guy has to go with me. So he says, ah, no problem, right? So... He, Tyler gets there first, but he doesn't have the credentials actually to get into the archive. Although we try to finagle him in, like so, you know, we get some academics to write him letters and stuff like that. And I'm on the plane. You know, it takes about 15 hours to get there, so I'm in North Carolina. So I'm on the plane to get there. He's already there, and he's not able to get into the archive. And so I'm, I, I'm texting him on the plane saying, "Well, try this, try that." And there's three stations. To get in. And so he's out at the station one and the, and he's not getting it. And he has a translator that the billionaire has paid for us to have. And so and then he says, should I show them my, creden- my credentials? And I'm thinking, I don't really know what his credentials are, but heck no. Like if he shows them whatever credentials he has, they're going to suspect me and they won't let me in, so that's a bad idea. So I say no, you know. But an hour later, he's still trying to get in. So I say, ah, I don't know, just showing the credentials. So he shows the credentials, and apparently his credentials, um, he he sees himself on the computer. He sees a, his face. So they have him in their database, and they they give him full access. And so by the time I get there, he's already he's already friends with some top Vatican priests, they blessed our project, and I have total access to get in there. So I'm able to get, you know, to find what I need to find. I look at the the stuff about Maria and Joseph, and I get as much information as I can. And then while I'm there, I also have been invited to the observatory, which is about an hour and a half up on this volcanic mountain. And um, with uh, these monks that live up there, and priests who are astrophysicists, and they have an observatory up there associated with the Vatican. It's the Vatican Observatory, basically. And they have all the archive stuff that has to do with space. So, of course, I want to go up there. So, I go up there, and I kind of, I have to tell you that when I'm in Rome, Rome is is really, for me, it was a really weird place, because... I didn't quite understand why Tyler was able to get all this access, but I took the benefit of it. Let's put it that way. I, you know, I benefited from it and we saw a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have been able to see. Had I not been there with him, he made a lot of friends. And then by the time we got up to, um, the observatory, I felt more at home because, you know, they were academics and I was like, okay, you know, these are my people, and so we got we got there, and um, I was able to get into the archive, no problem. They don't actually have any kind of like way. You know, it's like I know Brother Guy Consolmagno. He is the um, director of the Vatican Archive, and he gave me the keys, and he said, "See whatever you want to see." So I was in the archive, and I realized that all of a sudden, Sister Mary of Agreda is actually a part of American history because during the 1600s, when Spain was colonizing the southwestern United States, she said that she had astral-traveled on the wings of angels to New Mexico and that she had gone down and visited an indigenous people there and talked to them. And I was like, that's really weird. And so I looked up and I looked at Tyler... And I said, "Do you realize that Sister Maria was in New Mexico?" And I think that at the same time he realized. He looked at me, and he had a re- really weird look on his face, like, "Don't ask any more questions about that." And that, to me, whether or not she did, was it didn't matter because the fact that she even said that she did, and she, you know, she described what she saw when she was traveling on these wings of angels that the the you know, earth was spinning and things like that. I mean, it was just so weird to me that I had to include it as the last chapter. So that was, that became the last chapter of my book.
2: And then you found out in addition that she had a lot of controversial, uh, cosmological writings.
3: She did her first books. So she, the and I was able to bring this back to the person who was interested. Um, She was not made a saint, for, and her canonization is still up for decision, but um, she was not made a saint because she had written a lot of cosmographies, basically, that her first books were cosmographies, which were translating. And basically, she would fly around, she said, on the wings of angels, whatever that means, and... It would look at the earth from space and she would describe it and she would describe it in detail and things like that so i mean these were her first books you know <laughs> see
1: that's something that you know if this was 300 years later this would be a an alien contact experience
3: right exactly you know i yeah. mean
1: this, is, this yeah. is just like what the contactees said and you know, the, the, the venusians took them to mars and venus and all this kind of stuff yeah
3: Exactly. Exactly. And that, and you know, and and she's not the only one. In 1750s, a bestseller was by Emanuel Swedenborg, who said the same thing that he was taken yeah. by angels to Mars, the Moon, Venus, you know, and all kinds of places. And there's a whole religion based on him.
2: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And you you talk about how her visions were. Used by the elites to help justify the colonial project, and you you tie that to how possibly some of these new contactees and this mythology and, and emerging spirituality you know maybe just like we 're talking about before may be used for this new technological era we're getting into
3: yes, so this is the more controversial part of the book that. I don't know if you know this, but Whitley Strieber got into. I don't know if you know anything about what happened with my interview with Whitley Strieber. We do. Yeah, so Whitley Strieber is an incredibly intelligent person who knows things, and don't ask me how he knows things, but he does, and so he immediately identified that part of the book, which was the part of the book that was most edited out, and basically where I kind of make this controversial s- series of declarations that you know we're talking about politicized contact of cultures and so um you know here we have Mary of Agreda whose work was used by Spain to justify colonization that didn't end up well for the indigenous population and here we have Tyler whose you know, unfortunately, in a sense, I'm kind of, you know, I'm writing his story, right? And will it be used to justify some type of, I don't know, let's put it that way. So what I'm basically saying is that there's this idea of contact. And it's contact in the New Mexican desert. And um, and so I I don't make conclusions. I just suggest that let's look in the past because history... Do we want it to repeat itself? I mean, what I'm trying to say is that there's some really interesting history here. And I don't, you know, I have a friend who says there are no coincidences, right? And so um, I'm thinking this is a very odd coincidence. Should we learn from her? You know, her. she didn't want, let's put it this way, in the end, she, her visions were used against her by this by the church to justify it and she was trying to separate herself from that and that's most likely why she won't be canonized and so um you know and then we have tyler here who has a kind of a similar story in the sense that you know he's somewhat a tragic figure here is you know he's he was recruited as a kid basically and he knows no other life now he's given a lot just like Maria he's given a lot of status and he's given a lot of um uh wealth right because Maria's wealthy and so he's kind of um he's kind of occupying this very specific elitist position even though he doesn't necessarily want to he was just born into that right and so not that he was born into it as a child, but he was recruited into it. And so what I'm basically saying is that you have a parallel kind of story here, is all I'm saying. And right. then it was taken and um, elaborated upon in a very intelligent way. Um, but it, I don't know what to say beyond that. Let's put it that way. So I think because we, I could...
2: Yeah, people can put it together. I get it.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I said... Take the book for what, for what it's, you know, my editor, I have to give the best credit to I mean, she's just wonderful in many, many ways. and in instances, she said, you shouldn't say this because you can't make the claim and she's right. So, you know, I did the best I could as an academic to write this book.
2: No, and you did, and you did a real good job. And I mean, it, you synthesize so much that, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, all this stuff does relate though. And it's sometimes hard to even kind of keep it linear just because of that. Um, But something I really found fascinating is you use this term uh, of a hidden history of esoteric cosmonauts. I just thought that was, that was pretty awesome. You talk about J. Edgar Mitchell, you talk about the, uh, you talk about Parsons and you talk about the Russian uh, cosmos, which is something that we recently studied too. Uh, But I was wondering, is there, do you think there's any any kind of link between these people that isn't just um, kind of random? Or Is there any kind of organized link, you think, between a lot of these figures? And is this part of an ongoing tradition that actually has some kind of
1: uh, yeah, we did organized a whole, basis? We did a whole show on Russian cosmism one time.
3: Yeah. I mean, I could not even believe what i found when i went back i mean american cosmic is an homage to the russian cosmists the book the russian cosmists by the by jung i mean not Jung, but um young right who wrote that book and by my my same um editor by the way and um if you want to know about I think the best book written is his book, The Russian Cosmists. Um, And basically what he does is he talks about the belief systems of the Russian space program, which are strangely similar to the belief systems of the people who founded our own space program, um, except that the Russians were more Christian about it and less, you know, I mean, we've got, you know, los angeles and you know kind of like sex orgies and things O-T-O, like that yeah. yeah yeah and they have you know they have their own weird stuff but it's, it's not like that Steep so right. um,
1: steve highly and <laughs> russian orthodoxy even even though for most of the time of cosmism it was a an atheistic society on paper
3: yes yeah. you know what they believed of course is similar to, well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to place Tyler and James within this cosmist tradition right. that hasn't gone away. Right. So, however, let's put it this way. You ask a good question. Is there kind of a tradition here that, is it a conscious tradition? No, because Tyler had no clue about his own, tr- he had no clue about Jack Parsons. He didn't even know about his own history of the space, space program. He didn't. And James, you know, was only vaguely aware of Jack Parsons and the Russian cosmists. So my point was this, was that there is a tradition, but it is not a conscious tradition. And this is where you get into weird stuff like Carl Jung and stuff in the collective unconscious. But there's, you know, um, some... Some scientists have come out with this idea that there's a part of the brain that can identify this, you know, information that's non—that's um, not obvious to us in consciousness, right? You know about that? Yes. Okay. So that kind of explains a little bit about how this tradition could be carried on.
2: Right. Like it's just, it's some kind of. It's it's in some kind of collective that people access. Yes. Um. Well, because something I, I'm gonna get a little more speculative here, but there's this. We're talking about technology and the occult, and of course Jack Parsons is the one who really uh, blends the two more more than uh, you know anyone in in the popular culture. But there's this kind of ongoing occult tradition of contacting the other. Uh, whether, you know, or other entities, other intelligences. And this is, you know, very old. And then in yes. Jack Parsons, you know, he had direct connections to the, uh, you know, probably where really the meat of this kind of thing is really going on with the OTO mm-hmm. at the time. So with this technology now, I mean, it's, it's making me wonder. I know Jacques Vallée kind of hints at some about how these strange phenomenons were even accompanying the creation of the ARPANET at the time. And how uh, there, there's strange psi phenomenon that appears to be interacting with technology. My, what I'm wondering is, um, are we is the technology itself? Are we approaching some kind of ghost in the machine, or uh, something that allows us to contact something else? I mean, is this what it's really about, and what part of this mythology is about? That's okay, pretty so loaded. Th- I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no,
3: just, no. That's it, that's like, of course, a brilliant question and the question right so um as an act okay so i have to speak this is what i'm beginning to do speaking as an academic and then speaking from my own opinion yes so okay speaking as the academic and the books that i've been engaged with and such um and books that i'm reviewing as well um there's a great one called strange frequencies i don't know if you're aware of that one that one's really Mm. good um and that one is basically this question, right, about technology. And of course, you know, Mary Shelley asked the same theme, Frankenstein, right? So she oh, yeah. says, you know, she. so this question is, um, is this technology objective from us and is it somehow interacting with us as the other i think one of you has what brought that up earlier right as something entirely objective from us right okay so that's why i bring in this very controversial philosopher martin heidegger who unfortunately was a nazi at one point And not that I enjoy that, I mean, (laughs) I don't, but he does bring up a good point in the 40s and the 50s. He writes in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and he basically says, a new era of humanity is upon us, and it involves technology, and this technology is not us. And he's basically saying that we think that we utilize technology as something that is We use it, right? Like, you know, we use technology like a hammer, right? We use it. Well, he says, well, we're entirely wrong to think that. And then he explains kind of that there's kind of a mystical um, relationship with technology And that's where then I go, I go to Jacques Vallée and I talk about his own work. And so if you read some of the early, and by the way, you can, any of your listeners can go on to academia.edu, which is a free place. You have to put in your password, but it's a free place to access Jacques Vallée's early work in the seventies, where he's uploaded a lot of his work that we weren't able to understand at the time because we didn't have the technology to understand it. And now we do. So if you reread his work, you'll see that he, exact, he knew exactly what we are finding out now is that you know this interface of us with technology is something that creates another relation. It creates something. There's a third party involved. Let's put it that way. There's us, there's technology, and then there's this relationship. Right, and so the question then becomes, what is this relationship with technology? Well, it's a symbiotic relationship, and it reminds me—I hate to say it—but it reminds me of this, this, uh, this movie called Venom. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this movie called Venom is about this bio right. thing, right? Okay, so and in fact, the bad guy is Elon Musk, right? And the the, uh, you know, it's not. Obvious. I mean, it's not uh, said. It's
1: not it's really like, Elon uh, Musk. It's essentially yeah, yeah. Elon Musk. Exactly. Yeah, okay. right, okay. Okay.
3: So, okay. So basically, it's this um, organism that permeates us. It can permeate us if we have the right hardware, right? And so I think that what's happening now is is biotechnologists are um, trying to figure out. I mean, this is this gets into some really controversial yeah. science.
2: I mean, you and, can get as speculative as you want.
3: Yeah, I'm afraid to go there, though. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I guess I'm so trained, you know. But let's put it this way. Some scientists today are identifying hardware that, that is kind of like the Venom hardware, you know, which is symbiotic with our technology and which is not. And I and a lot, you know, Tyler has told me so many times, get off of social media, get off of technology. It's creating an addiction. There's a dopamine um, reaction that happens with it. But worse than that, even. And he doesn't exactly explain what the worst of it is. That is a big
1: attitude in Silicon Valley, because you do hear about that. You hear about how. The people, a lot of people in Silicon Valley are sending their kids to schools where they're not um, around their phone all the time and they're not raising them on their phone.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with it. So it's a, it's, um, yeah. So, okay, but that doesn't mean it's bad. That just means that we have to negotiate our relationship with it is what it means and that right now we're just consuming it just like fast food and that's bad for us
2: we need some uh, pentagrams on the floor to keep all the social media bots from
1: getting into us (laughs) (laughs) some seals well i i wanted to ask you diana before let you go i mean the the ufo phenomenon itself and the whole like the concepts of alien abduction Alien contact, which is really what I prefer to call it. Um, You know, you talk a lot about in this book um, about other people's experiences, but what are just, what is your personal view of some of that stuff?
3: So, okay, um, I guess, okay, I guess that what happened to me was that I grew up near Folsom Lake, and Folsom Lake apparently was a place where things happened that um, so I don't know classified information but I know what is classified and something happened there that was classified and I don't know what it was but I, that's where I grew up I literally grew up less than a quarter of a mile from there Okay, so I was constantly at that lake and so when I was a child and my brothers too we grew up um, seeing things, but, and, you know, one of my brothers was chased by something once. And so, um, you know, I have a fairly, I want to tell you, I have a conservative family. So I have like, you know, one of my brother brothers was in special forces. The other one is a lieutenant. So, you know, we're not, we're not like do AG, you know, people who are basically, Saying this, and nor would we, <laughs> because it's not the best thing for our careers. But um, but that's where we grew up, and so my own experience was that I didn't think about it. I just but once I started to but I was fascinated by these experiences as a child. And that's how I decided I was gonna. I decided I was gonna study this when I was 11. I mean, that's not normal. And so I went into graduate school. I studied it. I studied it and studied it, and then recognized at this late time in my, period. You know, I'm not super old, but I'm not like you know an undergrad or a graduate student. So I recognized that what I was studying my whole life was basically these. Experiences, these contact experiences. And then I was, I I mean, it really did, um, uh, for want of a better word, blow my mind. And so I was extremely disoriented for about a year. And then I started to go back into the Catholic tradition and reread the original sources of some of the saints' experiences and realize. That's what I was like. I was interested in those because of that, right? And so I was like, wow, really? And so that's how... Cross-pollination. America, yeah, that's America, That's how American Cosmic came out, you know, just from this organic realization over time of someone who really was never... Like I said, I never saw close encounters or anything like that. But I went as a kid about 12 to 13 I used to wander around at night and my parents didn't know when they found out they were, they forbid me to do it, but I did it anyway. I would leave my room. I'd walk outside and I'd look up at the sky and I'd say, come on, come on and take me back. And, um, you know, and I never understood why I did that. And so that was always this big question mark for me. Like that's a really weird thing for a kid to do. And so then as I got, you know, into the study of this, I was like, I was frankly really freaked out by it. So that's my experience.
2: So the, we really hadn't touched on yet. um, The reason you guys were out in the New Mexico desert to begin with, which corresponds to another area of your research in the Catholic studies, which is in the Catholic studies, it's the the relics and you all actually uh, found some objects out in the desert that do have some kind of strange components to them. They don't seem too uh, too normal, to say the least.
3: Yes. So we did find some. When we went out there, we were out there to find um, evidence. So this was allegedly a, a a place where an alien craft had crashed in the nineteen forties, nineteen forty seven. And there were about seven or so or eight of these places in New Mexico. And this was one of them. And so we went out there and we we did find some of this stuff. And James and I, being the academics, we we would, you know, we would kind of like secretly look at each other and say, are these planted out here for us to find? You know, so that question of whether or not these things were planted out there is uh, never answered in my book. Right. Because, yeah. you know. But, I mean, some of the things that I saw, you know, like James looking for this thing, his, his metal detector goes off. He wears these gloves, and he's looking down through these rocks, and he pulls this stuff out. I mean, I would not stick my hand through those rocks because of the rattlesnakes and everything. So, um, you know, they would have to have done some really good planting out there. But, yeah, we did find some stuff. It, it, is, it was analyzed, and it is analyzed. It's not with me. I don't have it. Um, I wouldn't know what to do with it if I did. And apparently from the scientists that I know, they say it's anomalous. So.
2: And it, it does have that parallel with your religious studies in that.
3: Uh, oh, it does. Absolutely. So, you know, within almost every religious tradition, if not all, there are relics. There are sacred relics. So sacred relics could be like, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the Shroud of Turin right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, things that cannot be explained. And so this is, so this is what I say. I say that these are the relics, you know, and and again, when Blumenthal and Kane's article came out, they talked about these things too. And so that's what spun people out of control. And what was really interesting too, was that, you know, I knew the people who were studying these things firsthand. And these people were that were peer-reviewed, you know, co- like in the best journals of science, and you know, stuff like that. And then the people, the the, um, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I don't care right now. Um, I might care in a week or two, but I don't care right now. Um, a lot of the the pushback to their article came from people who were not good scientists frankly, who didn't have good peer reviewed articles, you know, in, in our field, like in your field, you go, okay, who are the best podcasters and why? And you have criteria for deciding those things where in my field you do too. You're like, well, these are the best academics because they have, you know, this, they've done this kind of work and this kind of work. Well, the people that were in really well known, um, magazines were basically, um, doing a pushback on the New York Times article, they did not have the same credentials as the people who were doing the actual work. They, their credentials couldn't even match them. So I knew that most of the public didn't know this because they don't know how to assess the sources. But anybody who who could would just say, well, this guy doesn't, he's a retired guy who has not published in 10 years and he's basically saying, you know, this is just graduate student work. No, <laughs> no.
1: Well, Diana, this has been incredible. I know that you got to get going. Uh, we've kept you at least 15 minutes over time. Um, so but it was a great time. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. I mean, yeah. uh, it's definitely been enlightening. And uh, like I said, I really want to get you back on to talk a little delve more into the saint stuff. Cause I find that stuff, really really fascinating but um tell people um where they can get the book and uh contact you all that good stuff and what uh, what's next for you what are you working on next
3: sure thanks for uh thanks for having me on it's been really fun and you guys ask really on. good questions by the way really excellent questions Thank um you. so i have um a website called americancosmic.com um Uh, People can get the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, any place, you know, that... I think there's a discount. I can send it to you for the site on Oxford. But I think it's actually the same price if you just... uh, Like, there's some good prices out there on Barnes & Noble and and, um, Amazon. So... um, But I'll definitely send you the discount code, and you can put it up on your website. Um, And uh, for next, what I'm doing... I'm kind of like waiting for a while to kind of like uh, deep, you know, to process going through this research because it was a pretty intense uh, experience. And if I do something next, it will be about synchronicity and the communi- the ways that these scientists believe that they communicate with the beings.
1: Nice. Out of curiosity speaking of synchronicities, have you uh, or read or are familiar with Mike Clellan's work on owls oh, and synchronicity? Are you kidding?
3: He is like the synchronicity yeah. like god. <laughs> yeah, he's something else, and yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You actually like, in
1: one spot of the book and I can't remember where, but you remember I remember something talking about an owl or something like that, possibly. So it was kind of yes, interesting. Yes. yeah interesting. Yeah,
3: no, Mike Clellan is is awesome. I've never met him in person, but I consider him a friend.
1: Yeah, he's something else. Yeah. All right. Well, that's excellent. We're going to close out this section, Diana, but stay on the line for us, and we will be right back to close out this show on Conspiracy Normal. is brought to you by our new sponsors. Interdimensional alien AI open from the future. Please show your support by
2: going to patreon.com slash conspiranormal or making a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. Please show your support by going to Patreon.com slash Conspiranormal or making a one-time donation at
1: Conspiranormal.com. And now, back to the show. All right. Three, two, one, yeah, yep um where I, to where to start,
2: yeah, I do have to say, I think we have one of the most interesting American cosmic interviews e uh what it lacks for in linearity, perhaps it makes up for in other ways
1: yeah i uh I was pretty impressed by that, and i was you and I both read the book. So you were able to ask some pretty informed questions. And there was there was a couple, there was a synch- weird synchronicity that happened because we've been gearing up for this interview for the last month, basically. I think I finalized getting the interview done. I, I schedule a month in advance. That's how I like to do it. Maybe sometimes even two months in advance. And so I had gotten in touch with Diana and you got in touch with me about the beginning of this month, and you said, "Have you heard this American Cosmic interview on Higher Side Chats?" No,
2: it was Dreamland.
1: Was it? Oh, was it Dreamland? Yeah. Okay. I I that's right. I think you listened to the Higher Side Chats interview too. But uh, you said you said you got to get her on. I'm like, well, she's coming on in like three weeks. <laughs> yeah. So that was an interesting synchronicity in and of itself. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here and I'm going to kind of let you go over some of your thoughts.
2: Oh man. I mean, it was like, it was just, it's strange how much, uh, of these different interests, um, my different interests kind of all coalesced in this book as far as like the UFOs, religious engineering, myth-making, the, uh when I was younger, I was real into the, the, a lot of the early transhumanist theories and, and the postmodern media theories. And then with these artifacts they found in the desert, it's just right along the lines of all the cosmic alchemy stuff we've been studying lately too. And it's right. like all this stuff just came together. And then there's this whole weird kind of secret society aspect to it. And just, it's pretty, it's pretty wild synthesis. Um,
1: well, the biotechnology stuff that was that was interesting. Um, yeah, that yeah. was a little new to me.
2: It's basically like UFOs as a, a transhumanist religion is kind of what I'm, what I'm getting out of what maybe the utility of a lot of, a lot of this stuff is. It's pretty strange. I think perhaps the whole uh, extraterrestrial or you know other being aspect may actually be more minor in the scheme of all the implications Um,
1: it's pretty strange you see transhumanism and UFO in my mind are not two things that have necessarily gone together Right. so is it the technology aspect of UFOs and transhumanism that is being fit together to kind of create this new Right, belief system
2: yeah, and there well there, and there's always been that whole uh you know philosophical exercise of of uh our aliens, us in the future, in which they would be some kind of right uh consciously uh you know engineering our own evolution, and uh so that's really interesting, but god i don't I don't know where to start man,
1: yeah the whole time travel aspect. Well, let's start with Jacques Vallée. Here's a good place to start. And I want to. Next week, we're going to talk to Red Pill Junkie, and I'm going to kind of want to continue this discussion with him because he's a huge Vallée fan. Now, there's. Uh, you know, Jacques Vallée... Apparently, Diana knows him. She talks about him in the book, meeting him, and all this. Now, he is, of course. Uh, very famously was I think Francois Truffaut I think that's how you say it I'm terrible at French the character that was played by that director in Close Encounters of the Third Kind was based on John Vallée right Uh, Vallée wrote several books one of which he mentioned which was Passport to Magonia and Vallée is pretty instrumental along I think with John Keel of Pretty much looking at UFOs not as nuts and bolts, but something that's interdimensional or spiritual or archetypal or whatever word that you want to use for that concept. It's kind of the ultra-terrestrial kind of concept. Um, You know, looking at fairy lore. um, If you've listened to this show or Where Did the Road Go? You know, Joshua Cutchin talks a lot about that. Tim Renner talks a lot about that. Uh, so a lot of these guys, Red Pill, they're all influenced by Jacques Valet. But Vallée is also retired from the whole UFO field and went into the private sector and he went into Silicon Valley. And apparently in the 70s he was pretty influential, as you mentioned, in developing, I guess, what, the ARPANET and working yes. for Stanford Research Institute. Right. And you actually found something in a screenshot. I'm going to see if I can pull it up here. It's been a while. Do you remember what I'm talking about?
2: Uh, Yeah, I believe it's uh, something from a Red Pill article.
1: Right. Yeah, here's the picture. So, I think you had to resend this to me because I didn't quite catch what the what it was, but... This is, I guess, a PowerPoint slide or something, and he's standing right in front of it, and he says, three conclusions. New digital media, such as social networking, exhibit spontaneous psi phenomenon. This has been known for 40 years. Frequent synchronicities, answers type before unexpected questions. Uh, there is a chapter in the book about, um, in American Cosmic, that is, about synchronicities and about false synchronicities mm-hmm. that uh, people were experiencing as they were on social media as advertisements popped up. I guess when you mentioned something and your computer is listening to you, but that's a whole other show, but that, they know and they expect those things to happen, but still when that happens, they still have the same reaction reaction to it. Right. And it's still as profound, even though they, they expected it to happen. So we're getting into some interesting territory here, especially with Valet, especially with some of his ideas and his working in Silicon Valley is this idea of the ghost in the machine. So, Is there some kind of, you know, we had that really crazy ranting interview that Alex Jones gave on Joe Rogan not too long ago, right? right. Where he was talking about the Clockwork Elves and he was talking about Silicon Valley. I don't want to sound crazy here, but is this a new alchemy? What's going on? This is a new technology and they are bringing things through. Right. Essentially.
2: Or creating something new.
1: Yeah.
2: Or um, you know what what exactly is what exactly is going on? Is this being front loaded? Because with Uh, The advancement of technology that is on the outside, not the black stuff. Maybe what's going on in the black world right now is that they're having very strange phenomenon. And the more we get exposed to this technology, the more strange phenomenon we're going to be interacting with. So they have to front load it and kind of get these memes out there for us to be used to, you know, because if this first generation is already exhibiting strange psi phenomenon, what what about you know twenty years down the line? What is this stuff going to be like? But that bigger question, like you said, and what I was hinting at in the interview too, and I just asked straight out was that is there some kind of element of of contacting something else through this technology? You know, and what what is are we creating something totally new or is this something else coming through? Like what is very advanced artificial intelligence going to actually be? If it has a you know, if we have a spiritual dimension to us, if we have souls, like are these things going to be spiritual too? I mean, you know, the technology yeah. of uh, sigils is what people used to have and all these elaborate, uh, you know, mathematical and geometric systems that they were, you know, they thought they were either changing their minds to be receptive to things or that through this, you know, that, 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 those sy- magical systems served as a technology. Um, and even, you know, we've talked to, I know we talked to, to ran about like c- the cybernetic, uh, you know, you can, you can view cybernetics as magical and there's weird parallels to it. There's all kinds, I mean, and that's a really old cybernetics. So, what is in all this, uh, What is what are we going to encounter in all this new technology?
1: Yeah, are we making something that is abstract? Are we making that manifest in reality? Okay, yeah, go back to this, the show, the episode we did with Mark Stavish, where we had a difficult time wrapping our brains around this idea of the egregore. And basically, as I've described it, the egregore is a tulpa on steroids. But an egregore can be inhabited, according to him, Stavish, by something external. So some spirit, being, demon, whatever you want to call it, could actually, God, could actually inhabit, good lord, I'm starting to sound like Alex Jones. <laughs> could actually inhabit this this egregore and the idea of a tulpa is something that we create, and then you take it to one level to an egregore, something inhabits it and it becomes something completely different. I don't know if we made this point in that show, but is not the internet, is that not essentially a tulpa? Is that not essentially an egregore? Have we imbued this vast repository of knowledge with some weird kind of life, essentially?
2: Well, and she talks, she referenced uh, um, a, a cyberpunk book. I believe it's called Ribofunk. I think that's the name of it. It may be something different, but I encountered that in a different book called Ribofunk. If so, but. Yeah, she said. Ted Chang was the author. Okay, But, um, you know, in the, around the turn of the century, you know, when I was a teenager, I was reading all the classic cyberpunk books, all the William Gibson stuff. And that stuff really hints at, uh, there being, you know, these ghosts in the machine, there being these artificial intelligence programs that go rogue. And even he even has these like futuristic voodoo practitioners who are like conjuring these AIs and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's really wild. I'd I'd really recommend people to go back and read those William Gibson books. You know, Neuromancer, uh, Count Zero, Burning Chrome, Mona Lisa Overdrive. They're they're really good. You know,
1: and you have to wonder if similar things aren't happening now. Yeah, like that's the thing. And this whole idea of creating a new religion around technology and a technological kind of religion. What I wanted her
2: to get into, I was I was trying to get her to you know, ask that question of whether these traditional religions are going to butt up against this transhumanist worldview that is being promoted.
1: Oh, well. We talked about, we we
2: have talked about that a lot.
1: Um, It already is. Yeah. It's already happening. I mean, you, you see it, you can go back in our archives, and there was an interview I did with Canary Cry Radio guys about four years ago this is probably like almost 200 episodes ago where we talked about transhumanism and we talked about some of these ideas and you know, how they felt that it's inimical to Christianity. And you see a lot of places like skywatch TV, a lot of those guys, Tom Horn, they've been talking about transhumanism for a while. Um, some of it's really out there some of it's very conspiratorial but some of it i think has a has a, uh, a a a bit of truth in it um so you're already seeing that and i don't know about Judaism or Islam or but i mean man that's that's coming i mean we've talked about this several times lot, in private yeah. um on the show you know this whole idea of what artificial intelligence is going to mean what automation is going to mean,
2: um, what the new class system is going to be.
1: Right. Right. And the crazy stuff of that, I didn't make this point, but I'll make it now where you basically have this new kind of like nobility Absolutely. in like, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, you know, this whole attitude of we don't want our kids to be addicted to the technology that we produce because we know
2: it's bad. Well, any drug Lord doesn't want their kids doing the
1: drug. Right. But for the little people out in the world, we can give them what they want. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's dangerous. When she's hinting about that, you know, the,
2: how terrible social media is that it's even more than the whole dopamine addiction thing. I mean, is that, is she talking about some kind of uh thing that's feeding on all of our information that possibly all this information is creating some kind of weird, you know, could uh, be something similar to a consciousness or independent thing. I mean,
1: that's a mutabomber shit. <laughs> I
2: don't well, know. Yeah. And where, you know, where is, um, uh, I'm surprised that there is not kind of a a Luddite neo Luddite rebellion yet. Yeah, it's probably coming.
1: Um, Well, I I I think that you have two things going on. You have the absolute um, generations that have grown up with the internet, not knowing what not knowing what it was like without the internet, not knowing what it was like without some kind of smartphone. I mean, you literally have that now. You got to remember, I mean, there are no children alive now that were born in the 20th century, literally. Yep. yep. So we are moving into that new age. And for older people, I think there is still this fascination with technology where, you know, even I'm like, you know, the same way, you know, like, oh, my phone can do this. My phone's pretty neat. Right. You know? But.
2: It's just people, like a second skin to them, another yeah. the appendage.
1: Right. So I think there's the, there's there's still this fascination, and when when it's you know when it begins to affect people in their pocketbook, when you can't get a job anymore because you've been replaced by a robot, everything all right. So, you know that's uh that I think will be the might might be the turning point.
2: Right. But then uh you know, that's going to come along with uh, newer, better ways to keep people entertained. Mm-hmm. So the bread and circuses are going to become better and better, with higher resolution. <laughs> <Are> <laughs> Until you- eventually you get some kind of, uh, you know, virtual reality thing, or like in the William Gibson books called SimStem, I think it was called, where it's like a direct neural connection. And that's what all the pop stars and all the lives, alternate lives you can live, you know, it's probably going to... You know, there's that aspect to it. So, who knows? Maybe that'll Jeez. give them their bread and circuses. They'll be sufficient.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what you see in the um, the prequel to the redone, reimagined Battlestar Galactica called Caprica. There's this space where uh, people can go. It's like a, almost like a Second Life kind of thing, but it's a virtual universe. And the actual technology or actual like a i to create the cylons is in there because the guy's daughter that creates them dies, but she left her avatar in there, so yeah so i'm a, I'm <laughs> just watch about Galactica people, okay you'll see what, how this ends, <laughs> <laughs> just remember all this has happened before and will happen again and on that note sirphi <laughs> i'll tell everybody where they can find our virtual presence on the internet and uh send us some money
2: well, you could go to patreon.com/conspiranormal um you can also give a one time donation uh, possibly we're getting we're getting the website revamped right now so i don't know what's going to happen when when y'all hear this, but you can give one-time donations. Who knows? Yeah, at conspiranormal.com if you don't want to sign up for a, uh, a monthly payment. But uh, we got some cool stuff up there. We got some extra episodes and uh, we're trying yep. to make as much of that content as we can. We're trying to start doing some more romper rooms for patrons mm-hmm. only.
1: And we're going to, we, we should, uh, I'm going to try to have one up for April and uh, hopefully another Patreon episode up for April as well.
2: And try and do more video content too. We've got some ideas for some little documentary type things, little just simple gorilla films. Uh, but uh, yeah, please contribute.
1: All right, guys. Join us next week. We're going to be with Red Pill Junkie. We're going to talk some more UFOs, Jaffa L.A., and get his thoughts on all this stuff on Conspirador.
0: Bomb.